Welcome to another episode of the Founder Fundamentals Podcast. My name is Rahul Kumar, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Marlon Nichols, Managing General Partner at Mac Venture Capital and Adjunct Professor at Cornell University. Thanks for joining us, Marlon. Uh, thanks for having me. So you graduated from Northeastern and then Cornell and went straight into venture capital after your MBA. Many MBAs are looking to break into VC, but are unfortunately unsuccessful. What was your journey and what advice do you have for those looking to break into venture? Uh, my journey was a winding one that I think someone looking in probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But for me, it was just uh, learning about myself in terms of what I wanted to do, what I liked to do um, professionally and what I didn't want to do. So after Northeastern, I joined a, um, an enterprise software company, uh, which I helped to grow into Europe before it was sold to SAP. And the first learning there was that I didn't want to live inside one software company for a long period of time. So after I moved back from the UK to the US, I joined a consulting firm to you know, basically go to the opposite end of the spectrum. And the idea was that I would, I'd get a lot of um, breath in terms of the things that I would work on on a daily basis. Then I found out that I didn't like some aspects of management and strategy consulting. What aspects didn't you like? <laughs> we would come up with what we thought were these brilliant strategies for our clients, but you have no control over how those strategies are implemented, if they're implemented. And you're probably moving on to a similar client like just after that engagement, and you probably end up at the same kind of recommendation point. And for me, it didn't feel quite right to continue to give advice that I wasn't sure how it was going to pan out. So that felt a little empty for me. There are things I did love about consulting, though, was dealing with different clients, different you know executives, tackling challenges or at least exploring challenges. So those are things that I, I definitely wanted to continue to have in my career or you know be a part of my professional life. When I realized that consulting wasn't it, being in a startup wasn't it, I started looking around for, okay, well, what's the, what, what is going to be my profession? What's the thing that's going to get me excited to jump out of bed every day? And so I started to think about, okay, well, what are those things specifically that I want and don't want? And the things that I wanted were I wanted to continue to interact at the executive level with really smart people on a daily basis. I wanted to be involved in and around emerging technology and technology trends frequently. I wanted to have skin in the game and be a part of, of a solution and actually see it play out. And so venture capital was a great way for, um, for me to do that. So I, I learned about venture capital kind of late and then that's when I decided to go back to business school, basically to build a network in the VC space and to tighten up my finance and accounting skill set. You mentioned that you want something that really tries to get you out of bed every day that you're excited about. So the interesting thing that I've heard from many investors is that usually a majority of their days consists of either attending to fire drills or fixing problems. Does that still get you out of bed every morning excited? Yes, we are professional fixers. Um, yeah, it's like it's sometimes it's, you know, it's exciting news that, that gets you, you know, out of bed, like a, a really big deal is about to close or um, one of your portfolio companies is about to hit a major milestone. Like, you know, one weekend ago, one of the startups where I'm, I sit on the board, Blavity, um, had their annual tech conference and the attendance grew from 
previous year, I think 4,000 to 10,000 this year. Super uh, accomplishment. And it also kind of took over the city of Oakland, which is something that they hadn't done before. So that was an exciting time and something that, you know, we're thrilled to see and definitely got me out of bed and excited on that day. Oftentimes, though, it's a call from a a CEO or an executive at the company needing to talk about a problem. (laughs) And then, you know, then you're you throw on your cape and you're trying to, you know, be a superhero and, and help in any way that you can. That's what happens more times than the other stuff. Post your MBA, you eventually joined Intel Capital. What advice do you have for those that are looking to break into VC now but are unsuccessful? Uh, it's hard, right? It's it's a supply demand problem, right? There's way more demand to be in this business than there than there is supply or, or positions available. The only thing that you can do is, like I always say, and one of my mentors told me, you got to be a VC before you actually are a VC. And at the time, I didn't exactly know what that meant, but now I take it to mean you have to build the relationships within the entrepreneurial ecosystem and you know become a, a, a trusted advisor and um, and liaison to to entrepreneurs be someone that, that they respect and want to go to and um, as you kind of build that brand in those relationships it makes you more and more valuable to to venture capital firms and then the other thing is you know introduce you know your vc friends to interesting opportunities that they otherwise wouldn't have seen right because there are two things that are the lifelines of a venture fund. One is raising capital and the other is excellent deal flow. And so if you can consistently bring, you know, a VC firm excellent deal flow, then that's value add and it's someone that they'll want to have around. When you mention excellent deal flow, a lot of the times we look at it and it's somewhat of a retrospective statement. Like you look at the Ubers and you look at the Airbnbs of the world. But if everyone knew how to identify those opportunities, obviously everyone would be super successful at the business, which they're not. There's a lot more companies that obviously do fail than the ones that do end up making it very big. So in your definition or the lens that you use as an investor, what is excellent deal flow to you? The cookie cutter answer is, you know, it's a company that's going after a really huge market and they have a differentiated approach and the team is an excellent team with experience or domain expertise relevant to the problem that they're solving. In addition to that, I'm looking for like white space. I'm looking for um, new market creation, challenges that have not yet been solved, challenges that are relevant to the 99% versus the, the, the 1%, you know, solutions that are more gap closing than are gap widening. There's a lot to probably to un- unpack there, but you know it when you see it. But those are kind of some high level characteristics of deals that I look for. Going one level deeper for every company that you've invested in, they must have met that basic criteria of what you would consider as excellent deal flow. But in the ones in your portfolio that you, you've seen really soar ahead, what has it been that really differentiates those companies from the ones that not lag behind, but don't end up doing as well? So our thesis is around, we call it cultural investing, and it's the idea that popular culture drives the world, essentially. Popular culture is based on human behaviors. So the companies that, that, that we see like really fly are those that are really in line with how people are behaving today and are on trend with 
what we see, what we think or how we think or thought people would behave in the future. Those are the ones that, that, that really go. It's all about what's important to consumers and customers and what they value, where they spend their time, and those things always translate to how they spend their money. You mentioned white space, which I do want to get to in a bit, but after your time, once you were done with Intel Capital, you actually started your own fund, Cross Culture Ventures. Walk us through the process of setting up your own fund and your thought process behind formulating a unique investment thesis. So I was fortunate to go through the Kauffman Fellows Program at, while I was at Intel Capital. And one of the mandates is that you do a field project. They probably call it something different now which is essentially a research project that you can bring to life after you do the research work. And so for me, it was building out this thesis for, for a venture firm. So fortunately, I had the support and structure to go down that road. So then once I had the thesis set, it was time to see if I could execute on it. And the first thing I did, which I think is good advice for anyone, when you're starting something new and you have no experience in it, is to find people that have experience in it and get their advice and their counsel. And so that's, that's exactly what I did. I reached out to a handful of mentors and advisors and asked them to formally advise in this fund. So that was like Phil Wickham, who at the time was the CEO of the Kauffman Fellows Program, Mitch and Frida Kapor of Kapor Capital, who had been mentors of mine for forever, uh, Jason Green at Emergence Capital, and just basically got their advice on how to, how to do this thing. and. Fortunately, each of those people and groups also committed to investing in, in the fund, which kind of helped us get started. And then Frida and Mitch, in particularly, actually introduced me to my co-founder, Troy, because they saw, they saw something unique in what I, was, what I was planning to build and also knew things about him and his interests that made sense for us to, uh, to collaborate. So when you actually go towards building the investment thesis, you know, you want to be at the intersection of technology, popular culture, understanding how people actually behave. But one of the common questions that comes out in the due diligence process is what is the entrepreneur's superpower? And I think it's often lost or forgotten that running a venture capital fund is just like any other business. You have to go through that same process for yourself. So when you really did the introspection, what did you believe was your superpower that helped you formulate that thesis? Like, where did that thesis come from? I worked in a few different investment groups at, at Intel Capital. I worked in the software and solutions group. I worked in the new user experience group. I worked in the media investing group. And the last group, that the last thing that I did before leaving was help to create a diversity fund. It was a $125 million pool of capital because Intel always invests off of its own balance sheet that was uh, meant to be deployed in th within three years and deployed to founders of, of color specifically Black, Latinx, and Native American, and women. And learned a lot from that process. Just that designation of being a part of a diversity fund creates challenges or created challenges for those entrepreneurs in terms of raising additional capital or even raising capital during that same round. So I wanted to create something that would allow for investment into those communities or founders from those communities without the negative consequences or connotations that, that came with the diversity fund tag. I also wanted to invest in companies building solutions to challenges that I cared about. And then I wanted to incorporate you know, things that were unique to me and, and my partners. 
And a lot of that is around urban culture and popular culture and, and things like that. So how do we how do we look at that against technology, find, identify challenges that haven't been solved that possibly could be solved with the use of technology? And so all those things together is is how we got to the, the, the thesis around um, cultural investing. And in terms of creating a more inclusive environment when it comes to venture capital, or even in the Valley where you're based out of now, when you were actually setting up the diversity fund within Intel, what factors did you realize along the way actually prohibits or precludes uh, these groups, including uh, the Black, Latinx, Native American, and women from gaining access to capital or going through that process in the first place? Yeah, I think it's human nature, actually. Um, <laughs> which kind of sounds crappy. Think about a hiring manager, right? You know yourself, you know what you're good at. And because of that, it's super easy for you to recruit for that, right? If you're looking to fill a role and you know that you believe that you're the best at this, you're gonna hire yourself, right? And the same thing applies to investing in, in startups, right? You're basically looking for yourself in most cases, right? Or looking for a specific attributes that you have that are also in those founders. The second part of the problem is that networks are homogeneous. If you're a black guy, your network is probably primarily black people, right? If you're a white guy, it's probably mostly white men, right? If you're a woman, you probably have more women in your network. And so eh, that's not something that's gonna change unless you diversify the people that are deploying the capital within a firm. Right. From this lens that you stated of looking for attributes in others that you see in yourself, for you, what has been the process of bridging certain gaps in there? So from basic human part, you know, you can identify tenacity, you can identify an entrepreneurial spirit, but understanding culturally how someone has been brought up, especially in the Native American or Latinx communities, or even on the female side, the challenges that they're faced, how do you bridge that gap for yourself? It's about the team, right? So for instance, Troy and I are both black men right? Um, we grew up in similar um, communities in the U.S., you know, grew up basically poor, essentially, in inner cities. And so it was important for us to hire a woman that had a very different upbringing, right? We hired a venture partner that ultimately became a partner in the firm who was a Korean woman and 10 years younger than us. If there's a, a blind spot that we have due to, to age, you know, she'd be able to, you know, help us think through that, right? If there's a blind spot that we had in terms of how something impacts women, you know, she's not the expert on everything woman, you know, but, you know, she has a, she has a perspective, right? So, so those things help. The other thing is truly being able to and willing to listen, right? So, you know, frame the problem for me, help me understand why this is important for a specific community, right? Help me understand why it's important and quantify it for me. But the, the willingness to have those conversations, ask really hard, difficult, and sometimes you may consider it an appropriate question, but just you have to ask those in order to learn. So I, yeah, I think just the, the willingness to be um, truly open um, and flexible. So it's common to hear of M&A activity as it relates to industry, but you actually merged cross-culture with another fund, M Ventures. What was the catalyst behind that decision and what value did M Ventures bring to the table for you? We were at a um, point 
in our firm life cycle at Cross Culture where we felt like we'd we'd proven that, you know, we could run a fund successfully. We had consistent access to a great deal flow and we picked well. And so, you know, after kind of coming through that proof of concept, all right, well, how do we, you know, start to pour some gasoline on this fire and go? And a part of that is you've got to grow your team. And we were, at the same time, we were doing a lot of work with the M Ventures group. Uh, we were co-investing in a number of deals, looking at a number of deals together, and just dawned on me one day, like, why are we doing this? Uh, we see the world in the same way. Why are we doing this separately? Does might one plus one equal three in this case? And so we started testing it out, like actively reviewing deals together and and just going through a process to see if we could get along and if we truly did see the world in the same way. And that proved to be true. So we went ahead and merged our teams. The value of a venture firm is really in its partnership. So unlike you know startups that are building, whether it be software or hardware products, they're building an asset essentially that will be sold to some you know entity or to someone. All of our IP is is within us, right? And so, when I look at at our team, right, Adrian Fenty, which was a mayor of Washington D.C. and a special advisor to Andreessen Horowitz for something like four and a half years, he br- brings a very unique network and a very unique um, point of view, particularly around regulatory environments, government, municipality, laws, lawmaking, all that stuff. Then you you take a Charles King, who was a super agent at WME, has a you know a clear eye for spotting amazing talent and then grooming that talent. Who then went on to to start a film company called called Macro, again identifying uh, talent and actually taking that talent to create amazing content and a network that's you know in media that's pretty much unmatched, right? And then Michael Palank, who started in hedge funds, became an agent, worked at a couple accelerators, and um, also operated a, a couple of um, startups himself. Again, very different background experience and, and network. And so when you bring all that stuff together, you have a, a kind of unique seed stage venture fund with a deep network, deep networks in government, municipalities, media and entertainment, professional sports, as well as Fortune 500 companies and agencies, et cetera. And you'd be um, pretty hard pressed to find another seed stage venture firm you know, that can connect the dots to all those different areas. Mac Ventures portfolio consists of some very large names, including the likes of Fair, Gimlet, Green, Citizen, Maven, Carta, and you recently exited Gimlet upon its acquisition by Spotify. How did you get in on that deal and what was so compelling about Gimlet that you decided to put dollars behind it? Yeah, it's interesting. We were at an event in New York where, where Troy was actually receiving an award. I think he was receiving an award from Hennessy. And Alex Blumberg was interviewing him as a part of this. And so I was in, in the audience and met Alex afterwards as and um and Matt Lieber, co founder. And we were just talking about what they were what they were doing and they asked if we wanted to be on the podcast because they were <laughs> basically chronicling their entire like fundraising and company 
building um, story. And he said, maybe not so much beyond the <laughs> on the podcast. And then the conversation turned into, well, you know, we're taking on like our first institutional round of funding. Is this something that would be interesting to you? And so, yeah, we said, yeah, it could be interesting. My take at that point was that we didn't really like to invest in content. And this was kind of a content company, but we had the conversation and realized that it is a content company. It's the HBO of podcasting is, is how they, they pitched it. But it was so much more than that. They were pioneering essentially a new way to consume content. And um, the more and more I looked at it, I understood. And, you know, shout out to, to Troy because he saw it before the opportunity before I was able to see it. But I thought of it as uh, the next version of talk radio and that this thing would really disrupt that business in a meaningful way just because of the level of information that you would get and would be able to provide to the advertisers. So unmatched, unlike anything else they've ever seen before. And and then just in terms of like behaviors, people are more and more busy and on demand is becoming more and more of a thing. So talk radio listenership is going down, right? Because of that. So here's an opportunity for you to take the uh, the group that's falling off of that platform and bring them onto a platform for similar content. Where do you feel that we are in the life cycle of the podcast industry and specifically to white space? Where do you see white space in podcasting? I think we're still early in terms of adoption and, and spend that's that's going into it. I'm not sure if there is like real white space left at this time, right? So you have the you have the content creators, you have the distributors like Spotify now is you know a distributor of of this, and you have you know technologies like An- Anchor and, and and other stuff that it helps you create in a more streamlined and cost effective way, and you know annotated and and all this and all this other stuff. I'm not sure that there's a podcasting company out there today that I would invest in. If this was five years ago, which we did, um, I'd say, yeah. But I, I, I think the, the cat's out of the bag now. I think we have the players, and those players are, are you know, probably going to go up to the top. Or there might be some, some other players that, that um, do it a little bit better, but I don't think there's necessarily white space anymore. I think the cat's out of the bag. When you say that we're still in the early stages of podcasting, is it more that you say that there's space left in terms of adoption and listenership after that? Yeah, okay. exactly. And I think there's a ton more advertising spend that will go towards the category. Given that you're also a professor at Cornell, you spend plenty of time on the East Coast in New York. What are your thoughts on how the venture scene is evolving in Silicon Alley? Gimlet was a New York company. I have another company in a portfolio called Real Blocks, which is trying to disrupt real estate using blockchain technology. And there are others. Uh, Block Power is another one of our portfolio companies that's, that's based in New York. It's a growing space. Uh, my thing is that you know talent is ubiquitous, right? So are challenges that need to be met. What's not ubiquitous is true opportunity and true distribution of of, of capital. So we we don't focus on specific geographies in terms of you know where we find our deals. We've got a company in in New Orleans. We've got a company in Baltimore, Maryland, Chicago, Nairobi, Kenya. And they could be anywhere, right? 
What's interesting to hear is a lot of them will say, hey, we need to be out on the West Coast. We need to be in San Francisco. That's where the action is. That's where the scene is. That's where the network is. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that ideology? Is it, hey, if you're in your home market, you see a problem unique to you, stay there and go fix it? I think Silicon Valley used to really believe that for companies to be successful, they need to be there. I think with you know mobile technology, video technology, all this stuff, companies can be more virtual, you know, I, I think it's easier to, to interact with, with founders and, and all that stuff. So I, I don't think companies necessarily need to, to move to do that. And, and if you're a great company, you could be anywhere and, and find success. Now the, the question becomes, as you mature, can you recruit top talent while sitting in that market, right? We had a, a company that was um, based in Cincinnati, Ohio, a company called Solo Funds, uh, doing peer-to-peer lending, and um, they found that they were having trouble recruiting top engineering talent and top executive talent, and so they ultimately moved to Los Angeles to you know to be able to attract that talent. And as soon as they did that, they were able to close on a head of product and some other roles. It's more about hiring and resources, and and can you do that from where you're sitting um, today? Putting a spotlight back on white space. As an investor, what verticals or sub-verticals are you particularly interested in right now? Entertainment, I I think, and particularly in and around streaming, is an interesting area. What we're seeing with Netflix, for instance, and, you know, the the flat um, subscription growth or lack of subscription growth, and the fact that, you know, you have other players coming in the market, Disney, Warner, etc., that are going to spin up competing platforms, that only means that subscriptions are going to go down, you know, so revenue still needs to keep going up. So there's got to be other ways that these companies are going to have to monetize. And it's going to be interesting to figure out what those ways are. So that's that's one. You know, health tech is another one I'm really super interested in. I mean, we're in a healthcare crisis, essentially, in, Everything's this, in this country. Yeah. And, you know, so how can you leverage technology to drive down costs for individuals as well as payors, and how can you improve on the quality of care? Uh, and so we've made a few bets in that space. Firefly Health, Ready Responders, Mommy, Arene are you know four examples of, of those companies. One of the benefits of being a venture investor is that you get this ringside seat to innovation and where value is being created. You mentioned interest in media and entertainment. Given your experience, if you could start any company right now, what would it be or what valuable company within this domain do you think is not being built right now? Um, so for anyone listening, if they go out and build this company, it's basically implicit agreement for you to fund them. <laughs> I'm not signing up for that. Uh, <laughs> but the most recent bet we made is in a, in a company that's basically helping with ad placement in existing films on streaming platforms. And um, they're using basically 3D technology to dynamically impose images, um, both still and in motion, onto existing film or or new ones. And again, this is going back to, you know, the my 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 theory that these streaming platforms are going to have to find additional revenue streams to monetize against in order to to um, you know continue to be successful. Uh, so that's, uh, and so you know, this company has deep technology, great founding team, et cetera. Once we finish the deal, I'll, I'll come back and tell you the name of the company. 
So what deal do you regret missing out on the most and what were you able to learn from passing on that investment? A lot of deals. <laughs> you know, one that I wish we had seen that we didn't see was Peloton, right? I know they're not yet performing as well as everyone expected them to on the public market, but it did very well for their private investor base. And I, I think that they fundamentally have changed, are changing how we think about in-home group exercise, like in-home group exercise. Is that a thing? Like, how do you, you inviting people over to your house? Like, you know, it's new, right? And, you know, their customer lifetime value is super impressive. Like, you know, people get on the platform and don't leave, right? It's a really interesting media, fitness, and technology company, right? With a hardware component, which is a very small part of the um, the, the revenue. So I, I just think it's a true culture shift in terms of what that company does. And I think it's gonna, it's gonna be very, very successful even beyond where it is now. For entrepreneurs who feel that they fit max venture mandate or the funds mandate, you know, they think that they align with your mission, three pieces of advice for those entrepreneurs when they come to eventually knock on your door and raise capital. The best source of deal flow and most effective and, and um, successful source of deal flow from us have been through the founders that we've worked with. So I would say uh, connect with them, learn about us through them, and connect to us through them. If you can't do that, you know, there are investors that we've worked with in the past that, you know, that we've worked with on a number of deals together. Connect to us through them as well. If not, and we just don't have any um, inter points of intersection, fill out our form on our, on our website. We are probably one of the few firms that will evaluate everything that's submitted from uh, the contacts um, page on our website. We promise 14 days to, to review it, but we, we genuinely look at every single um, deal because it goes back to um, what I said earlier, you know, talent is ubiquitous, opportunity or access to capital is not. And so we wanna make sure that we're not missing, you know, the next phenomenal company because it's because this entrepreneur is not within our network. That was Marlon Nichols, Managing General Partner at MacVenture Capital. Marlon, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great. <laughs>